and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have a very interesting show. We're going to be talking about innovative approaches to dealing with what otherwise seem like utterly intractable, heavily entrenched, and oftentimes degenerative diseases, illnesses, such as Parkinson's, rheumatoid arthritis, autism, Lyme disease, sometimes cancer. And there are a series of innovations that have taken place, well, over the last really 120-plus years, in fact, if we want to be historical about it, and even before that. But in more recent times, we've had something called functional neurology and functional medicine show up on the uh, horizon of medicine. Functional neurology is something that's not practiced really that uh, that extensively, except by a handful of people, relatively speaking, across the country. And one of them is going to be our guest today, Dr. Eric Kaplan. It's very interesting because, well, we all know that Western medicine, allopathic medicine, is incredibly effective when it comes to such things as emergencies, certain kinds of injuries. But emergency medicine, I would say, is sort of the, the crown of allopathic medicine. It's you're in trouble, they know how to, in a rather rigorous way and sometimes overly ambitious, but effective way of helping people stay alive. And for that, we're grateful. However, when it comes to dealing with degenerative diseases, long-time chronic illnesses, or such things, as I said, as Parkinson's or rheumatoid arthritis, basically they're offering different types of drugs, sometimes surgery, to rectify a situation or at least just maintain an existing condition so a person doesn't simply just die. This isn't really healing. It's disease maintenance. Here today, speaking with Dr. Kaplan, you will learn about some very interesting breakthroughs which have been taking place for years now, but not so much on the national radar, which have to do with very straightforward understandings of the way the brain and the nervous system work in respect to some of these chronic conditions and how they've been able to turn around in ways that modern medicine, allopathic medicine, has not been able to do. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Eric Kaplan. Eric, great to have you on the show today. Yes, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I was doing some introduction, as you heard, about the work that you've been doing. I should also add that uh, Eric Kaplan has a background first in chiropractic, but he is now a board-certified functional neurologist and just one of the few in the New York City area. And uh, he's done uh, a number of postgraduate studies as well at the Carrick Institute, including specialty courses such as movement 
disorders, vestibular rehabilitation, and childhood development delays. So it's really a pleasure to have you on today, Eric, and uh, I'm really interested in sharing with our audience about the kind of work you're doing. Could you begin by defining functional neurology, how it differs from neurology as we typically know it, as well as then functional medicine? Yes, definitely. So what functional neurology is, is a technique where we evaluate the nervous system, find areas that aren't working properly, and then come up with exercises, therapeutic modalities that can improve those weak areas to increase function and reduce symptoms. That differs from a typical medical neurologist, which would be just sort of masking the symptoms. For example, let's say someone has anxiety and they go to a medical neurologist, they're going to get some sort of medication which is going to shut down the brain. The result might be a reduction in anxiety, but it also shuts down the part of the brain that is responsible for joy and happiness and love. So it's a global shutdown. So even though you're getting rid of the anxiety, you also have a lot of side effects and getting rid of other stuff, and people actually lose their personality. A different approach in the functional neurology world would be to find out what the cause of the anxiety is, where the dysfunction is the brain, and rehab that part of the brain, increasing its function. Therefore, the anxiety will go away, and there would be no need to take any medication. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, one is actually being scientific in that you are seeking out the cause of the anxiety instead of simply blanketing it over with a, uh, a medication that just dulls the senses. Right, exactly. And as a functional neurologist, we are able to figure out where the anxiety comes from, and it could be multiple places. So one of the places Absolutely. could be in the frontal cortex where there is an imbalance from the left and the right brain. Another mm -hmm. area could be in the brain stem where people are stuck in this fight-or-flight mode creating an anxiety in a situation where there's no threat. It's a, called a sympathetic tone. Those would get two completely different treatments. So the same problem, anxiety, can actually come from two different parts of the brain. And what we would do is evaluate, okay, which part of the brain is being affected most, focus the therapy to that part of the brain, and the good parts of the brain we leave alone. So if it's not broke, we Absolutely. don't fix it. So we just find the exactly. areas that are dysfunctional, fix those, and then the anxiety will go away. And as a holistic psychotherapist, I would be looking for the issues, the personal, social, intimacy, work-related issues that are showing up in a person's life, causing the anxiety, which would in turn cause them to retreat perhaps to that part of the brain, the brain stem, which would have the fight and flight reaction and seek to create a, a sense of balance and relaxation. So in that way, retrain the brain 
and the person to reorganize uh, their perception of what would seem like an anxious moment. You know, so it actually dovetails quite nicely with the kind of work you do. It's just on a somewhat different level, but they 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 actually share something in common. It's nice. So, would you also then define functional medicine and how that also distinguishes from uh, standard allopathic approaches? So, with functional medicine, basically what we do is evaluate the internal body. Uh, One of the best ways is through blood work. And we look for what's called pattern summaries. And we look at the different levels. And I have certain scales. Now, most allopathic doctors will have their scales of blood work, but it's based on sick people. Unfortunately, in America, more people are sick than healthy, and the people that are going to get blood work done are usually people with problems, and what they're saying is normal, actually normal compared to a sick society. So what I've done with functional medicine after years of research have found out about healthy people, and we look at their scale. So if we look at healthy people, and we look at a bunch of thousands of healthy people and look at their thyroid levels, we're going to figure out what the healthy scale is. And in a Mm -hmm. typical medical model, when you're evaluating the thyroid, for instance, they look at what's called TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. The TSH levels in most laboratories range from about 0.3 to about 4.6, which is a very wide range. In functional medicine, the range is much shorter where it would be a 1.8 to 3. So we don't wait till it gets so bad where the doctor says, okay, now we need to medicate for your thyroid. We pick things early on before they manifest into actually any symptoms and then try and get it within that normal range. So Mm. functional medicine is we look at these pattern summaries, find the areas that aren't in the normal range try and fix it early on before it manifests into a bigger problem. Yes. It's all about prevention. Yes. The worst thing <laughs> is waiting for bad things to happen. As functional neurology and, and functional medicine, we like to find things very early before they even become problems, and then you maximize your potential and prevent any conditions from progressing. The problem is, in America, we're always trying to treat uh, problems after they occur. But the real cure for any condition is finding them before they come and to prevent them from happening in the first place. Absolutely. It's called preventative medicine. And, you you know, the grandmothers, our grandmothers, Eric, uh, and grandmothers and mothers of old always knew that, that, you know, an ounce of prevention, you know, is yeah. worth, a, you know, a pound of cure. It's just the way and it is. And they knew that thousands of years sense. in Eastern cultures, way before Western civilization occurred as well. Exactly. Um, so the Westernization of medicine has actually um, caused a lot of harm. I mean, the breakthroughs in surgeries yes. are amazing, but how we're 
currently treating medical health is, is not the, the proper approach. It's just treating symptoms rather than getting to the underlying cause of the problem. Absolutely. And to really kind of uh, characterize the point you're making about Eastern traditions, uh, which, you know, I'm also part of, I've got my, my psychotherapy hat on and I've got my acupuncture hat on because I've been trained in Chinese medicine. The kind of standard uh, idea that comes to us from ages ago is that the Chinese physician, his job was to keep people healthy and including the emperor, if the emperor were to get sick, I don't want to tell you what would happen to that physician. <laughs> In other words, the right, exactly. Well, actually, the... Avoid uh, illness. I'm sorry? Exactly, exactly. Right, yeah, exactly. The, the emperor so, of Japan actually has sought out functional neurology uh, himself as well, so... Um, now, functional True. neurology oh, is worldwide. It's not just in America. It's it's all over the world right now. That is fantastic. And did it originate in the United States? What is its history? Yes, it originated in the United States. Uh, the father of functional neurology is Dr. Ted Carrick. Um, so he's been around since the 70s um, doing research and figuring out how the brain works and coming up with the proper modalities to bring people back to life. He started getting people out of comas, actually. That's how he became really popular. And now we moved on to uh, movement disorders like Parkinson's and stroke rehab. And we just came out with studies about how eye movements will help rehab a stroke brain and get people back to life. It used to be thought that once you have a stroke and the brain cells die, that you're stuck like that for life. But now we yes. know through functional neurology and a process called neuroplasticity, we could actually regenerate the brain and create new synaptic connections to bring the brain back to life. Beautiful. Beautiful. So uh, just a word about the founder of functional neurology. Was he a DC or was he an MD? He's His own DC. background. Yeah, he, uh -huh. I mean, he has more letters than he's the alphabet. He has, he's got a DC, <laughs> uh, PhD, an FACFN, a DABCB, uh, uh, board certified <laughs> in about. Now it's seven. really alphabet soup. Yeah, exactly. So, and he keeps <laughs> no, going I more wanted, and more. No, I just uh, wanted. He actually just wanted got to know the valedictorian in Harvard Medical School as well. So um, he's my mentor. I'm actually going to see him a few weeks in Orlando for a new seminar excellent. series on movement disorders. Excellent, excellent. So good. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that it's far-reaching as it is, although, you know, by and large, in comparison to allopathic medicine, of course, it's a, uh, it's like um, – one cell in a in the number of cells we have in the body, but I'm very glad that it's beginning to gain some level of recognition because the work that I had the chance to uh, see a little bit of myself through the little work you did with me was uh, quite interesting, and I I felt that uh, you know you really had your finger on the pulse, so to speak, of something very important for us. Also, as a student of neuroscience myself and neuropsychology, I've been very interested in the role that the brain and the nervous system play in overall health and well-being. So this is, uh, you know, it was a real joy to meet you and come across the work that you're doing. Let's circle back to um, some of what that work is. You mentioned stroke. You mentioned Parkinson's. 
start with, if you would, with the stroke, because as you said, uh, the the overall thinking is that there's very little we can do is the standard medical line after some physical therapy and in some cases biofeedback. So what are you doing? Uh, do you have a case or two that you could share with the audience of what kind of changes you've seen in somebody with a stroke? Yes, definitely. So with stroke, it all depends on where the stroke occurs. So, you know, the most basic way to look at it is it occurring in the right brain or is it occurring in the left brain? Let's say a stroke is occurring in the right brain and a patient uh, is basically paralyzed on the left side of their body. One of the rehabs that we do is using mirrors. So where people look in a mirror, we have these called prism glasses, where they look in the mirror, and when they're looking in the mirror, their right arm appears to look like their left arm. So it's reverse. And one of the ways we do is sort of trick the brain. So they'll do exercises on the unparalyzed side. So let's say um, the right half is paralyzed. I will have them look in the mirror on their left half of the body, moving their good body. The brain actually sees the right brain, the right part of the body moving, and then that activates that area. So we had a patient yesterday who literally couldn't move his arm. So uh, we're trying to get him to eat food so he can't, like, bring his hand to his mouth. This is a stroke This is a stroke patient. Yes, he's actually a a famous uh, producer of documentaries. So he's actually doing a documentary on his rehab right now with us. Mm. And what's going on is as we're trying to get him to bring his hand to his mouth so he could feed himself, we were doing rehab, and I need a system for this, where they uh, move one part, I move the other part, the patient is looking in the mirror, And after about 20 minutes of doing this, for the first time, he was actually able to bring his hand to his mouth. And this is after two years of just the typical physical therapy route that most patients do, and they were just Mm -hmm. looking for something alternative because they weren't getting the results. So we did these intensive therapies. Within 20 minutes of his first session, he was literally bringing his hand to uh, his mouth. That is Awesome. That is Yeah, people's awesome. jaws were dropping, so, his family and his uh, age. Uh-huh. Like, they could not believe it. And uh-huh. it's like, we get results like no one else can get. I got people, That's another patient with a stroke who came so in, let me, in let a me wheelchair. Just deconstruct, let just yeah. to deconstruct the method you use, because it's very creative. You the, Through those prism glasses, glasses lenses, yeah. you're able to give the, uh, and the mirrors, the impression to the patient that the part of their body that hadn't been working is working. And the perception of that, they see it, but of course the image is switched because of the the nature of the prism or or the mirror. And so they... They're thinking, they're perceiving that the part of their body that hadn't been working is working, and that's enough to then stimulate the brain to actually make it work. Yes, these are called mirror neurons, and they've done research with with monkeys 
where the monkey, one monkey is throwing the tennis ball, and we see this part of the brain light up. Then yes. they do another experiment where that same monkey watches a different monkey throwing the ball in the same exact way, and it actually lights up the same exact part of the brain. So without even actually <laughs> doing the activity, but looking right. at the activity going on, it activates that part of the brain through mirror neurons. Exactly, exactly. That's why there's this whole thing called cybervision. I used to, I used to teach um, uh, skiing, um, but it wasn't skiing in the ordinary way because I'm, I'm a decent skier, but not incredible. But we were teaching the inner art of skiing, uh, inner skiing, like there's the game of inner tennis, and we were using video as a way and that would create an alpha state and people could learn by watching because they would feel the and by seeing the movement in their own body of what it feels like to be an excellent skier it's exactly the same correct. principle of mirror neurons exactly and that's why when we watch movies or television we ought to be very mindful of what it is we watch because we're literally experiencing what it is we're seeing on the on the silver screen I like to exactly. tell people that. That's <laughs> so, a very good point. Anyway, please go on. This is utterly fascinating and fantastic. So you've got results yeah. in 20 minutes. Now, what are the next steps? I mean, what, do you, what next do you have to do with this gentleman? Okay, so we've got to do a lot of things. So let's say, if, let's say we're trying to stimulate, we'll stick to the right brain. So let's say the right brain got stroked out, and this is the area we need to stimulate. We know through research in neuroscience, if we do a slow eye movement, to the right, it stimulates the right parietal cortex. We also know through neuroscience, if we do a really fast eye movement to the left, it stimulates the right frontal cortex. So depending on which area has been uh, stroked out, we will actually give different types of eye exercises, but very specific to that part of the brain. So very simple, just like you could go to the gym and exercise a weak muscle. Using neuroscience, we come up with the exercises to activate the weak area of the brain. So yeah. we might use light. We might use smell. We might do certain joint movements. We might do a little spin in a chair in a certain direction. We might do different auditory stimulation, different sensory input. So it really depends on what we're finding, the area of the brain that needs, and based on that, I'll come up with a protocol to increase input into that area, and then we always do a post-check, so we do an exercise, and then we recheck the weak area and make sure that it's an improvement. So you always do a pre-check and a post-check. Okay, so the pre-check is, all right, this area is not working. Then I come up with a therapeutic exercise. Then I do a post-check, did that therapeutic exercise improve the function? If it improved the function, then we know we could utilize that exercise over and over and over to keep pumping up that brain. Through neuroplasticity, we need to use two types of summation. They're called spatial summation and temporal summation. Spatial summation means we're doing all different types of input all at the same time. So I might do light and sound and movement and smell all at the same exact time. Temporal summation is, is where we do these stimulations and repeat it over and over and over over time. So with a stroke patient, I will literally see them 
24 times in one week to get the greatest effect. The more we do it, the quicker the change occurs, and you create what's called long-term potentiation, where just a little bit of stimulation does a long-lasting change. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And, of course, through the neuroplasticity, you're building new neural circuits, a new neural web around the new activity or the re-engaged activity, as it may be, uh, that you are looking for. Exactly. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, And another You've seen a number of uh, stroke patients, I take it, some who came to you uh, early on and others who came to you, uh, like this gentleman, a couple of years later. Is that correct? Unfortunately, more of the patients are coming later on. I would love to get patients right away after the stroke, but unfortunately at this point, uh, once people get a stroke, they don't seek out the functional neurologist right away unless they've already They don't even you know, know heard about, about you. They, they don't even know yes, about it. They haven't even known is, you as an option. Yeah. Right. So once that's they, one of the reasons that's one of the reasons I wanted to uh uh have you on the show so we can broadcast the broadcast this far and wide so more people will learn of your work as an option for them. When they are right, and it going becomes even through. more impressive later on because they'll do years of therapy and occupational therapy and physical therapy and rehab, and then we'll get a change in one week greater than they've done with all these others in, in Over years. years. So it's even Incredible. more impressive when the patients come later on because they're at the point where they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm ever going to get better, and then we give them hope and say, hey, look, look what exactly. we did in 20 minutes. Imagine what we could do in one week or two weeks, and we exactly. can give these people their life back and, and change humanity and, and get people hope that it wasn't there before. Absolutely. That's so beautiful, Eric. Now let's just switch gears for a moment, uh, unless there's something else you want to add about the stroke. It sounds like, is it true that over time with the series of stroke patients you've seen, you've seen measurable effects? Oh, yeah. I've literally gotten people coming in the office in wheelchairs and a week later walking. Like, that's how big this stuff is. Oh, oh, my God. Even with a short, you mean the paralysis from stroke? Yes, the paralysis from stroke. Coming in. I wish I knew you a few years ago. My mother actually had had a stroke, and she was confined to a wheelchair in northern Connecticut for life, literally. And I did a lot of acupuncture on her and uh, et cetera. She had a lot of um, treatment, physical therapy primarily, and no, no, no. It just did not have the desired effect. So uh, where were you You when I needed you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're here now, believe me. Yeah, please. Just like we were talking about in the beginning is – it's always getting to the cause of the problem. So why are they paralyzed? Are they paralyzed because the muscle's weak, and that's what physical therapist is working on, or are they paralyzed yeah. because the signals from the brain aren't going to the muscles, so then the muscles aren't working? So if you just you rehab go. the muscles, but you're not getting the signals from the brain to the muscles, you're not going to get the results that you need. 
but if you get to the old exactly. underlying cause of the problem is where the brain damage is occurring, and then you stimulate that area, then the signals from the brain go to the muscles, and then if you do the physical therapy, then you'll get the results. But you've got to get to the exactly. cause of the problem, and that's where the stroke well, starts bio the in the brain. Biofeedback was an innovation that did creep into the conventional medical establishment, and that was stimulating the brain and giving certain kinds of rewards when a patient was able to move a finger or move an arm or move a leg. So that that approach was engaging the nervous system and the brain wisely enough, but functional neurology is now stepped that up into a whole other level, much more sophisticated understanding. Plus, we also have a more thorough understanding of uh, neurophysiology, all of which is so important for this kind of work. So, you know, just to to be a successful uh, functional neurologist, what the key is is to have great observational skills, and that's what separates mm-hmm. a functional neurologist from any other doctor is their observational skills because what happens is does the doctor able to observe the difference after doing a certain therapeutic exercise and what is that difference and how is it affected and what are the pathways that occur after that? So the first key to being a great functional neurologist, that's the great observational skills. Okay, when I did this, uh, what happened to the pupils? Did they shift over? Did it constrict a little bit? What happened to their head tilt? What happened to their muscle activation? What happened to their reflexes? So to observe the results of the therapy will help the doctor determine which ones are going to work best because every single patient is different. It's not like every stroke patient gets the same exact type of treatment. Every patient gets their own individualized plan based on what works best for them. And it's an art to figure out what exactly is going on and which is the best way to handle it. Well put. Let's move on to looking at Lyme disease, Parkinson's, and uh, how about the big C? What have you first of all seen with uh, Lyme disease? Well, Lyme disease is probably one of the most complicated uh, diseases out there. So there's a lot of theories and a lot of doctors uh, currently working on Lyme disease. The uh, Most people, you know, get it probably from, you know, a tick bite, and uh, you get a the way to see is if you don't see the tick on you, you might see the bite after, and it might have a target bite where the, you know, the middle looks a little bit different than the outside. Uh, there are two tests, the ELISA and the Western blot, and some of these tests, unfortunately, have false negatives and false positives. Uh, not the most reliable tests in medicine, but it's the mm-hmm. best thing we have right now. Uh, what I notice in my practice is a big um, dysfunction of brain activation after a patient gets Lyme disease. So just like in a stroke, we're going to go after the areas that the stroke affected, the same thing with Lyme disease. So we see what areas are most affected where did it go after, and then give the appropriate exercises to stimulate that area. Mm-hmm. And for these people, they come with me, you know, with even depression and fatigue 
and uh, neuropathies and difficulty with focus and concentration and lack of motivation and immune system dysfunction. Migraine headaches for sure. Actually, funny you should bring that up. I just had a migraine uh, patient yesterday uh, who came in, sunglasses, earplugs, Mm. nausea, 10 out of 10 migraine, in the worst pain in her life, could not believe what was going on. I did this new technique where, and this is just literally invented um, less than a year ago, not even researched yet. We're currently doing research, and I'm giving all my studies uh, to Dr. Sullivan, who, who discovered this technique, um, this infiltration technique, where we pump air into the ear. Literally in 20 seconds. I was telling you about 20 minutes with the guy lifting his arm up. Yes. This was 20 seconds of doing this air oh. into the ear, got rid of the migraine. She takes off her sunglasses. She takes off her earplugs. She comes out into my reception area, and all these patients saw her like coming in with her, you know, her head into her legs yeah. and uh, in pain, coming up smiling and happy and laughing. And they're like, "What oh happened in there?" And she's like, "He pumped some yeah. air into my ear and got rid of my headache." And and people could not believe the results. And this <laughs> literally, is and this is only for migraines. So patients come in with a sinus yeah. headache or a tension headache, or a stress headache, or a cluster headache, it won't work. But if it is for migraines, it has worked 100% of the time, where we put the air into the ear in a specific way, and it literally in 20 seconds get rid of the migraine headache. I think you're just making the person giggle, and they get rid of the migraine. No, I'm kidding you. No, because they, is... they didn't believe, like, oh, how is this going to work? Maybe. And I like that even better when they don't believe in it, because if we could get someone yeah. better when they don't believe in it, that's even more impressive. Truly. Because a lot Truly. of, a, a lot of medicine goes by the placebo, where they're taking a pill and they think they're going to get better. When we get sure. patients, when they, they have no idea this is going to work, that's even more impressive. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm a huge fan of placebo as well. You know, that's because the the brain and the body and the mind know that it can really heal itself because that's what the body actually is doing all the time. And, you know, you may as well use nature. I love it. Sure. Of course, of course. But that is an extraordinary story. I have uh, have a couple of uh, clients for you. (laughs) That's remarkable. But it has to be during the headache. Oh, it has so to we be only do that technique the when the patient actually has the headache, yeah. However, will that stop the headache from recurring when they're not in your office? Well, yeah, that's a different scenario. So what I found with most migrainers have an issue with blood flow into the brain where they're not getting yes. enough oxygen. And yes. Like we said, with every other condition we've been talking about, it's getting to the underlying cause. Now, why are they not getting the blood into the brain? And that could be multiple reasons. There could be some structural issues where the arteries kind of bent and not getting up into the brain properly. There could Mm -hmm. be some uh, autonomic issues where they're not constricting or dilating the arteries or arterioles properly and not getting enough blood flow there. There could be some functional medicine issues related to hemoglobin, which transports the oxygen. So there could be multiple, multiple reasons why these migraines are not getting their blood flow and oxygen into the brain. And I have multiple patients coming in for migraines. They'll get seven different treatments if there's seven different causes. 
So it's not like there's one yeah. migraine treatment for everybody. We get the cause of their specific migraine, figure out why they're not getting the oxygen, why they're not getting the blood flow, and then go after the cause. Again, the medicine, the medical neurologist, is going to give you a pill to get rid of the symptom of the headache. As a functional neurologist, we're going to get to the cause of the headache. Why is you're not getting the blood flow? Why are you not getting the oxygen? And then fix the cause, and then the migraines don't come back in the future. Absolutely. And you've seen results again with these multimodal treatments. Yeah, we see these results, and it's pretty funny, actually. With migraines, we get these results, and then a few months later, they'll be like, oh, how are your migraines doing? And they'll be like, I don't have migraines. And they almost forget that they even had the headache. <laughs> and I actually, mind you, you know, so you used much. to come yeah. in with migraines that occurred every, like once a week for four hours straight. You used to call out of work, <laughs> and, and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not getting any headaches anymore, which is good. It's yeah. like they don't even want to remember that stuff. So, so yeah, it's yeah. pretty amazing how we can not only fix the pretty migraine amazing. while it's happening, but also prevent them from occurring again in the future. Sure, absolutely. And what, at base, what you're really telling me, Dr. Kaplan, is your respect for bioindividuality. And that oh, yeah. is why everything has to be custom designed per patient. And I very much appreciate it. And as far as structural issues there for migraines and other issues as well, uh, like oxygen to the brain in the blood and mm-hmm. the brain, it could be a cervical problem, you know, you would pay attention to that as a chiropractor, or a craniosacral yep. issue. It could be the, the brain, the, 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 you know, the skull itself being you got it. maladjusted, imbalanced. So uh, let's correct. go back to Lyme. I know that Lyme is a, uh, you made it clear, is a real challenge because it tends to come with so many complications. But in terms of results that you have seen in your office, Talk to us about that. Yes, yeah, so the typical medical route is to do antibiotics, okay? Yes. The antibiotics a lot of times won't even get rid of the Lyme disease. Conversely, the uh, side effects is they not only try and kill off the bad bacteria, but then they kill off the good bacteria, and yes. what I've been noticing, a lot of the Lyme patients have inflammation in their body, and they have acidity in their body, and their mm-hmm. immune system is messed up. So what we have to do is change the whole way of their body, and we have to get their body more alkaline or basic as opposed to sure. acidic. acidic. And we have to work on nutrition, and we might have to get rid of uh, certain foods that create sensitivities, the biggest being uh, dairy is probably one of the worst ones, um, mm-hmm. and gluten I'm sure everyone's been hearing about recently, uh, sugar sure. is really bad, alcohol, uh, caffeine. So we have to really work on nutrition. We have to work on brain exercises. We have to work on meditation we have to work on getting vitamin D and sunlight. We have to work on their sleeping habits. So it's a multimodal technique with Lyme disease because it's like going to war with Lyme disease. When you're going mm. to war, you don't just you know, bring your army and your ground troops. 
you come from the Navy, you come from the air, from the, the air. water, you come from the flank, yeah. you come from behind. Yeah. The only way to win uh-huh. the war is to hit it from all the different angles. If you just do the mm. antibiotics, that's usually not going to work. You have to boost the immune system. You have to boost the nervous system. You have to boost the vascular system. You've got to work on nutrition and exercise. So that we take a very big approach with Lyme where I hit it from all different directions. And by doing that type of technique, we can literally give people their lives back. I've had uh, just last week, I had a... Um, a young lady who got Lyme disease, she came from Connecticut, and she literally had to drop out of school because of, she couldn't think anymore because of her Lyme disease. It was that bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. did these intensives with her in one week, and she's telling me that she's studying again. She literally couldn't study for more than 10 minutes without getting headaches and dizziness Now, she told me, she just sent me a text message, she studied for four hours straight, no headache, no dizziness, she didn't have to reread any lines, no problem with focus or concentration or motivation, and she just thanked, and she's ready to go back to school in the fall. She just registered for her fall um, to go back to college after taking the whole uh, spring semester off because of her Lyme disease. In one week, she literally registered back for school. That is awesome. So yeah, I, I literally short, have the best job in the world. I get I get these people their lives back. <laughs> it really sounds that it's way. It's just yeah. amazing. I love it. It's fantastic. I love it too. And so uh, we, you of course need patient compliance when it comes to that, to a higher degree perhaps. And yeah. uh, yet you, with a number of patients with Lyme, you have seen positive results, positive outcomes. Yes, a ton of positive outcomes, uh, probably fun. in the thousands, probably in the thousands. That you have seen yourself? Yeah, personally in my office. Yes, in your office. That's extraordinary, truly extraordinary. Yes. Uh, now let's, uh, just for the sake of time, move on to Parkinson's. We can deconstruct and tell stories about each one of these, but uh, just for the sake of time, I'd love our audience to really get a, a large kind of a, spectrum of effect of functional neurology and functional medicine. So on your website, for instance, Eric, you have an excellent story about someone with Parkinson's who you so much of this, you know, and I'm particularly sensitive to this as a uh, as a psychotherapist and counselor of looking at the psychological myths that uh, populate our society that are promulgated by the failures of modern medicine, such as, oh, a stroke, you can do nothing about it. Lyme disease, we'll throw antibiotics at it and pray. Um, Parkinson's, oh, you're stuck with that for life. There's nothing we can do. You know, on and it's always this down, downward story. Whereas when I speak with you, I get an entirely different perspective. The brain lights up simply by thinking that there is hope and oxygenation increases. You know, that's the physiology of joy, laughter, and smiling and and literally of hope. So you're already creating an environment that good things can happen inside of, you know. I just have to make that note. <laughs> but within that no, context, that. that you're 
Yeah, sure. In, in the context of your office environment, Derek, uh, tell us a little bit about what you have seen with Parkinson's. Okay, so Parkinson's is a disease in a specific area of the brain called the basal ganglia. The basal ganglion is where you produce dopamine. Most people have heard of dopamine. And sure. dopamine, um, what happens is when the basal ganglion is dysfunctional, it's not producing the dopamine. And modern medical society will give you a drug, usually it's called L-DOPA, um, to basically supplement the dopamine and to dopamine. get rid of a tremor. Their biggest concern is the tremor, and they just want to get rid of the tremor. So if they give you this L-DOPA and the tremor goes away, that's a success story in the medical society. But the problem yes. with that Symptom is what relief, happens is – Right. But what happens is there's something called a tardive dyskinesia where mm-hmm. in Parkinson's they come in with a hand tremor. They take the L-DOPA. The hand tremor may go away. But then maybe six months later, their lip starts giving a tremor. But it's not from the Parkinson's. It's actually from the medication. From the and drug. And that's called a tardive yep. dyskinesia. Sure. What we, we see it a lot in psychiatric is, medication. Yes, exactly. It can, yep, in psychiatric. And it happens in Parkinson's too. So what we don't want to do is give a drug. And then that causes side effect, and then we need another drug for the side effect, and then, okay, that one's not working, let's change it. And, and basically, these Parkinson's patients are becoming human guinea pigs, where they're just trying all these yeah. different medicines and just kind of experimenting and see, you know, what helps them move a little bit better and what gets rid of the tremor. What we want to do is just like we've been doing this common theme of this whole conversation is get to the cause of it. And the cause of it is getting that basal ganglion activated on its own Therefore, that can produce the dopamine, and that will get rid of the tremor, or what's called bradykinesia, which is a slowness of movement. So the Parkinson's patients will also have difficulty uh, swallowing food and talking and balance problems, and they get a, a, um, a loss of facial expression. It's called a mask face. This is all due mm-hmm. to this bradykinesia and the lack of dopamine. So what we do is... Just like I was talking about with the Army hitting it from all different directions, there's lots of different inputs into this basal ganglia, so we might use the frontal cortex as a good route to get into that basal ganglia. Uh, We might use uh, the thalamus and the mesencephalon and all these different parts of the brain which are connected to the basal ganglia to give it a little boost and to get it to start to work on its own. And then what happens is sort of like those lawnmowers where you, you pull and you pull and you pull and you pull, and eventually <laughs> it turns on, it's and then you don't have to keep pulling anymore. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're activating, we're activating, we're activating, we're activating, and eventually this basal ganglia starts to produce the dopamine on its own. It's called long-term potentiation, neuroplasticity. Once we mm-hmm. get to that point, the tremor goes away, the balance improves. Balance is the biggest problem with Parkinson's because that's why people die. They're usually not dying from the actual brain disease. They're dying because they lose their balance, they fall, they hit their head, they crack a bone, they get an infection. So it's usually a balance issue that's causing more yeah. of the dysfunction and the deaths from the Parkinson's. Um, so we do a lot of what's called vestibular rehab. That's one of my fellowships where we do vestibular rehab. So I'll have my Parkinson's patient 
and this is, it's amazing to, for you to see this. They'll be on this cushion, and I'll put on a metronome, and they'll throw the uh, uh, tennis ball up, and they'll catch it, and they'll pass it around their back. And we'll see these people, they come to the office, and they can't even walk. And then I have them do these exercises. They're literally, like, juggling, running around tables, and you're, they're doing these things that they can never imagine by activating these areas of the brain. And we do it through that spatial and temporal summation. We do it over and over and over again. And eventually, we don't even have to do the exercises where they start just doing it on their own naturally. So, in short, you are stimulating the basal ganglia over and over and again until it actually starts to produce its own dopamine again. And coupled with a series of movement exercises that seem impossible for a Parkinson's patient to do at first, they actually begin through repetition and encouragement, emotional support, I'll put it. Um, They actually begin to do it, and the symptoms of Parkinson's go away as well as the cause. So you're saying, I'm sorry, I'm not versed enough in Parkinson's to know, but the lack of dopamine production is, no pun intended, at the base of Parkinson's condition? Yes, correct. That's exactly correct. Yeah. So and with Parkinson's, it's very cool. We find what's called a sensory trick. Every Parkinson's patient has a different sensory trick. Uh, one of my patients, um, the one that I'm treating today, his sensory trick is every time he puts up his left leg on the chair, all his tremors go away. And we use the sensory <laughs> trick, and we start to do brain exercises with the sensory trick because the brain is working at a higher level. And then we do certain eye movements and lights and sounds, um, spins in this sensory trick modality to enhance that long-term potentiation so it lasts much longer. Another one of my patients, yeah. there. Their sensory trick was to put the right hand on top of their head. So that's we just kind of, kind of uh, guess and, <laughs> and manipulate and do all these different things and find out which sensory trick yeah. works best for each patient because it's all individualized. Yes, indeed. And you know that there is one somewhere lurking in yep. their in their movement world. Yep. <laughs> you know, you they just all have, have to identify one. it. Yes, yeah, we all have find that. it. So interesting. It's being a detective. So again, you got to figure it out. You have to be a Sherlock, exactly. So when you review the number of Parkinson's presenting patients that you've had over time, Eric, uh, Mm -hmm. what kind, how would you estimate the effectiveness of your treatments? That's a great question. So uh, the key with every condition, like we've been saying, is, is prevention. I have probably helped close to 10,000 patients prevent Parkinson's to begin with because I have this technology, um, which you use yourself actually, which is the VNG, where Mm -hmm. we can pick up Parkinson's 30 years before it even happens. And I've seen it, yeah, I've seen it literally like over 10,000 times where I've picked up this early onset Parkinson's 30 years before any tremor would even occur and literally fixed their brain, got that dopamine producing before they even knew they would even have Parkinson's. 
that is the easiest where it's a 100% success rate when we pick it up 30%, 30 years before it even happened. Now, when patients come to me and they're already, you know, have these big tremors, they've already done the L-DOPA, they've already had the tardive kinesia, they've already had all these falls. So when it's a really progressed where maybe 80 to 90% of the basal ganglion is destroyed, you don't get as good of results with those types of patients. But mm-hmm. what I will do for the patients that are maybe 90% of their brain is already gone, we prevent it from progressing, which is a huge win. So most Truly. Parkinson's patients are told that it's a progressive disease where every year it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, just like Alzheimer's. It's a progressive mm-hmm. disease. It doesn't get better. It only gets worse. What we do is at least stop it from getting worse. And that's a big win where I can help a patient, okay, they can still continue to be independent and they can can continue to walk where they're not going to need a wheelchair. They can continue to have fall prevention. So sometimes it's so severe where we don't completely reverse it, but we can at least stop any progression. Um, But no matter what, we always get positive results, whether it's stopping progression or actually ending all the symptoms and improving balance and getting rid of tremors and getting uh, more better swallowing and voice and um, handwriting improvement. And within, and, while I know that this is uh, it's it's extraordinary, even though I know it's bioindividual, uh, give me some sense of the time frame in which uh, these kinds of results uh, begin to really show up. I would say in 90% of my patients, we get results in one week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But it's, okay. Using, it's using those intensive therapies. So it's only the patient that is committed where they spend maybe three hours at my office for six straight days. That's, that's where we get yeah. the results in a week. If it's a patient that says, hey, you know what, I'm very busy, I can maybe come in once a week, for them, yeah, they're not going to get that results in in one visit. Yes. But the ones that are committed, yes. that are here for the three hours, and they're coming in six days a week, and they're doing all their home yes. exercises, they're following the nutrition protocol and the sleep protocol and the water protocol, those ones that are compliant, 90% of them get results in one week. A noticeable change, not only change scientifically on the VNG where we have measurable changes in brain function, but also in their own life, whether it's tucking in their shirt or combing their hair or signing a name on a check, noticeable changes within one week. Extraordinary. Cancer. Cancer. Okay, so particular, any of them, all of them, or uh, just particular ones have you been able to be effective with? So with cancer, um, cancer is cancer, okay? So we all have Mm -hmm. cancer. You have Mm -hmm. cancer inside you right now. I have cancer inside me. All your audience, they Mm -hmm. all have cancer. We all have bacteria. We all have viruses. We all have the AIDS virus. We all have the Epstein-Barr virus. We all have, you know, every disease is actually in our body right now. But they're very very small quantities, what happens, what cancer... And manageable by the immune system. Manageable by the immune system, exactly. When the immune system is not working properly, 
then the cancer starts to multiply or the bacteria starts to multiply or the virus starts to multiply. It's all about the immune system. And the immune system gets, can get suppressed by many different reasons. Like you were talking about before, emotionally. So if you're emotionally stressed, your immune system becomes weak. If you're physically stressed, your immune system will become weak. If you're biochemically stressed, your immune system will become weak. So the key is to reduce all those three stresses, the emotional stress, the biochemical stress, the physical stresses. So those are getting to the cause of the cancer, and then your immune system will boost up, and you can prevent that. So prevention of cancer is the cure of cancer. So you see all these uh, race for the cure of cancer. Racing is the cure of the cancer. Is that getting exercise? That is the cure. You're not racing to find a medicine for a cure of cancer. There is no medicine cure of cancer. You'll never, there's literally in medicine, there's never been a cure for any disease in the history of humankind. There's never been a cure. Mm. There's not one medicine that has ever cured any disease. Every disease is cured by prevention. Okay? So if we can reduce those emotional stresses, those physical stresses, and those biochemical stresses, you'll never get cancer to begin with. Yeah, yes. what I think you're asking about is once I have cancer, what do I do? That is. Now that I, is believe me, I appreciate your preventative psychology and perspective completely, and I we agree. We we assess that at the very beginning of the show. <laughs> and right. Going back to the emperor of China. Yes, go right. ahead. Okay, so now let's talk about the cure once you get cancer. Uh, so there's lots of different cures, and there's lots of great uh, practitioners out there that are really helping with cancer. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, the, the really good cures, they're not, you know, a pu- a, approved by the FDA and, and so on yes. and so forth like that. Um, because when there's a cure for cancer, then a lot of people miss out on the money and the profit of the chemotherapy yes. and the radiation of and the surgeries the and stuff like that. institutionalized cancer world. Right. Yeah. right. So most of these people who are getting money off cancer, they, they want you sick. And yes. we don't want you sick. We want you healthy. So the cure for cancer is lifestyle change. Okay, yeah. and you might need to change your job, which is very stressful. You might need mm-hmm. to change your diet, which is full of pesticides and herbicides and hormones and antibiotics and hard mm-hmm. to digest food and preservatives and food dyes. You might GMOs. need to change exactly GMOs. You might need to change your household products. You might need to get rid of the Febreze spray and the perfume that you Mm -hmm. use and the hair dye that you use and the uh, uh, chemicals that are plugged in that release uh, good smells. And you might need to change (laughs) your laundry detergent and your dishwashing stuff and um, all these chemicals, chemicals, chemicals that we're exposed to. There's a lot of chemicals that we can't control, like the chemicals that they put in the fluoride in our water or the chemicals that they put in um, the geo Well, we can filter those out. We can filter those well, out. Yeah, those are, it's tough, though. I mean, I haven't found too many yeah. quality products that actually filter out the fluoride, and if you have some, I would love for you to share with I me as well. I definitely do. 
Yeah, yeah, I've been looking for that stuff. Uh, but sure. yeah, what we need to do is the stuff that we can control is is get rid of those chemicals. So you got to get <laughs> rid of all the chemicals. You can get water filters for your shower and for your drinking water. Yeah. Um, you can work on stress reduction techniques like meditation, and you can work on getting your sunlight. People think that sun causes cancer. No, the sun is actually a cure mm-hmm. for cancer. The yes. problem with so that is actually you said the that. Yeah, yes. the suntan lotions actually cause cancer. Those are yes. probably the, the worst screen. chemicals you could put on your body. The sunscreen, Isn't yeah. Isn't it unbelievable? Yeah. Sunscreen. Right, so people think that they're putting on these sunscreens that are going to prevent skin cancer when the chemicals they're putting on the skin actually causes skin cancer. So, True. yeah, you have to be very careful. And one of the cures for so cancer very, is support. So when people, let's say, uh, in the case of prostate cancer, what would you see as, of course, we've got the chemical part of it and the lifestyle part of it. But on the other hand, there's this idea, and please, you know, uh, jump in here, that the prostate due to testosterone release over time enlarges the prostate, which then puts pressure on the urethra, and we have a problem. Um, well, again... We've got to get to the cause of the problem. So if that's the case, why is the testosterone being overactive? Out of balance. So you got to get to the, yes. right, you got to get to that cause. It might be a thyroid or, or there might be some sort of medication that you're taking or there might be um, some sort of hormonal issue or some brain-based issue. So you always got to get to the cause. Mm-hmm. Why is that happening to begin with? And then yes. you might have to change it and alter it that way. Have you been able to work with, just since I mentioned prostate cancer, has that been something or ovarian cancer, cervical, that you've been able yes, to all, all uh, three. effectively deal with? Yes, yes, yes. We've had uh, people, uh, I can think of a patient with ovarian cancer. Uh, she went to six different oncologists. Uh, they all said she needed chemo. She's going to die in four years. Uh, so chemo, the, the oncologist would literally call her on the phone and saying, hey, you got a schedule. This is very important. And, mm-hmm. you know, she went to all these different oncologists. They all said the same thing. And then she came to me, and we did this mind map. So she started um, drinking a ton of water. She became um, an organic, GMO-free vegan. Um, she started uh-huh. uh, doing charity, and she started helping other people. She started going to sleep an hour earlier. She started doing new activities and learning new languages. She started having a positive attitude. She started going to church. She started exercising. Uh-huh. She started breathing techniques, meditating. Uh, we did brain therapy, body therapy. She started um, calling her mom more frequently and going out with friends and going to shows and going out in the sun and having a purpose in her life and loving and having community and support <laughs> and breathing exercises. And literally within seven months, she got a, another CAT scan and a PET scan, and she was cancer-free, and she did not do any chemo, and she did not do any radiation. And she went back to the oncologist, and what did they say? Oh, you got very lucky. And she was like, no, it was not luck. I That's worked my sounds butt like off. luck to me. Yeah. Right. I worked yeah, yeah. my butt off to cure this cancer. And, you know, now right. this is this was a few years ago. She has um two healthy kids and now she's inspiring other people to to, to let them know, hey, there's other cures Beautiful. for cancer besides chemo and radiation. Beautiful. Beautiful. I only have Beautiful. thirty seconds, so uh, is there a way that we can Absolutely. finish up? Absolutely. 
Absolutely, sure, exactly. We've run beyond what I thought, but it's so interesting what you're saying. I just so appreciate the work you're doing. Why don't you share with uh, our audience your phone number and your website, okay, so, and we'll let right, them... If anyone, uh, if anyone wants to contact me, and, and I'll offer to your um, listeners a an actual free evaluation, which is normally $200, um, if they call yeah. by the end of this month, and the phone number is 212-620-8121. That's 212-620-8121. And if you'd like to go to my website, it's um, kaplandc.com. That's K-A-P-L-A-N-D-C.com. Wonderful. Dr. Eric Kaplan, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. I would love to repeat this again, not the same content. We'll go further in reaching into other areas that we haven't touched yes. upon today, like let oh, me yes. not forget Alzheimer's. Okay. <laughs> All right, great. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks well, that, we could do that next time for sure. That's a, that, we could do a whole hour just on Alzheimer's, so that would be great. Very good. I'll talk to you soon. We'll set it, we'll set it up. All right. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye now. Dr. Eric Kaplan, a real pleasure, a real gift to uh, our city and to uh, our society, people who are thinking outside the box and are being creative in the way they approach uh, health, disease, prevention. He's thinking along exactly the lines we need people to think along and step out of the medical paradigm, which has its value. I say that to people all the time. I said it at the top of this show. Emergency medicine is completely brilliant. I've seen it save my friends, and it's just brilliant. And there are so many doctors who are so uh, well-intentioned and do such good work. When it comes to degenerative diseases, chronic illnesses, the tools with which they are working aren't sufficient. Let's keep things simple. Let's not look at the overly ambitious profit motive of the C-level uh, of the major pharmaceutical companies. Okay, Let's put all of that huge as it is a for a moment. Let's just look at doctors looking to do good for people. Like Dr. Kaplan, they enter the field of medicine to be of service. Let's honor that and then realize that they are ill-equipped. It's like a soldier being sent off to do battle without equipment without a gun, you know, what have you. It's just ridiculous. I would rather not see that scenario occur at all. That's another conversation. But when it comes to doctors seeking to help people, if they're only given drugs and a scalpel, well, as Dr. Abraham Maslow so perfectly said, if the only uh, tools you have are a hammer, you will tend to see the world as nails. And that's what goes on. So just with all due respect,
many doctors. I deal with doctors routinely, and they seem like they are very often eager to learn about new alternatives, natural alternatives, alternatives with very few, if any, negative side effects. The only side effects they want, and we want, of course, is those that help make people even healthier. It's tough. Money has become God, and money and power together rule our society and rule, overrule, common sense, true rational thinking. And it's sad. And again, no one is saying money is bad. Of course money's not bad. It's energy, man, and energy is good. It's somehow part of our life force. That's not the issue. It's who are we as human beings and how do we deal with all levels of energy and life force, including in the form of money, and do we let ourselves become wholly distorted in our worldview because of it? And this was being implied through today's show in various forms by Dr. Kaplan and myself. I would like to bring to bear another domain that, of course, was inside of all we were speaking of, but I want to make it a bit more explicit, which is to be looking at the emotional stresses, since as a holistic psychotherapist and stress management consultant, uh, I deal with all the time, looking at the emotional distress, emotional stress, emotional conflict substrate of our daily living and our thoughts and our feelings, whether they are anxiety-producing or depression-oriented, are related to the release of hormones into our blood and into our tissue, moment after moment. In other words, what we think and how we feel is influencing our body and its overall temperament, its overall health, its overall immune function. So, what are you saying, Mitch? With our minds, we can actually create an environment of health? You betcha. You betcha. That's truly the way it is. Alone? (laughs) No way. That's not the body was designed for movement. So it needs to move, and it's fun to move it. And instead of making uh, life around food because it brings joy, although that's a good thing for so many people, food is medicine, as Hippocrates was teaching us. Let food be thy medicine. So when you add up common sense, lifestyle choices, eating healthily, drinking plenty of water and staying hydrated and overall liquids, of having healthy exercise habits, movement, fun, play. These are all part of a healthy lifestyle. Sleeping well, being of service to others. As Dr. Kaplan said in that last example of the woman with uh, cancer, 
who he said started going to her church, started getting involved in different kinds of charitable activities, he was saying. And her giving herself and being of service to others in need helped her get healthy. It's very interesting that when we give more, we receive more. I mean, that was a pretty smart God who came up with that one as a universal principle. I definitely applaud it. Anyway, you are surely digesting these points that I'm making having to do with the way vitality works, the way life force works, the way our thinking and feeling operate, the way ongoing emotional conflict and distress depress our immune system. And there is ample, ample evidence. In fact, thankfully, took a while. But the field of psychoneuroimmunology has developed, and that is indicating exactly that. Now, of course, there's the very interesting field of, um, what, what is it called? Um, it's recognizing the importance of the gut now, we've so often said that the, the gut is uh, really a third brain. Some call it a second. I call it a third. You've got the head brain, you've got the heart brain, and you've got the gut brain. And in three, with all these activated, we become, well, as a famous teacher of mine said, a three-brain being. And when these three are harmonized, we are at our optimal so, yes, we have 30 to 40,000 neurons in our heart and around our heart. It is literally a thinking brain. I like to talk about the heart, essentially, as part of the nervous system. It's an interesting way to think about it. And, indeed, the gut and the uh, microbiome, there's been extensive research into this at this point, and bacteria are our friend, as we've also said many times on this show, that we have a whole lot more bacteria than we do human cells, so when we say, I am Mitchell, who in the world am I really referring to, my human cells or my bacteria, and are they mine, and who is mine, so it all starts to get rather interestingly philosophical and existential when you look at the way and re-examine, deconstruct our ideas of identity and of ownership. Uh, you could say our ideas of real estate. Ask the Native Americans. They think our idea of real estate is utterly bizarre, if not pathological. They never had an idea of real estate or ownership. Space. Yes, land, indeed, but ownership. So when you get underneath a lot of the stories of our society and our culturation, inculturation, you start to see some pretty peculiar phenomena and the general daily assumptions we make about the order of things is not exactly the way it really is. And we know because, among other things, science is unpacking that. Some ancient wise ones 
unpacked it long ago in their more often poetic language, but science is now further corroborating a lot of the wisdom of the ancients, of the uh, shamanic traditions worldwide, going back 30 to 40,000 years in Siberia alone. Now that turns on its head a lot of assumptions we make about us being the pinnacle of human civilization. I think we've got a lot of reflection to do in that regard. But coming back to our wonderful uh, show today with Dr. Kaplan, who is doing exemplary work, I want to just say that functional neurology and functional medicine is bringing us back into alignment with common sense, with understanding the role of lifestyle, understanding the role of the uh, soup of chemicals in which we currently live from everything we spray into the air and put into our water and put into our food and even the building materials uh, of the houses and the structures we live inside of. Everywhere is chemicalized and beyond that the world has become medicalized. Everything is its own distinct pathology for which there is a pill of some sort, blue, green, yellow, or otherwise, to take to cure it when it doesn't cure anything. And I want to just say that, uh, not to say that there are no medications that have value, there are in very limited, specific, particularized customized ways, which is not the way they are dispensed. They're dispensed, unfortunately, like so much candy. Dr. Kaplan made a very interesting point. He said, no medication has ever cured anything. Wow. That's powerful. And next time I have him on, I would like to have him uh, talk more about that point. But I'll just infer this, that Certain medications can create an environment in which we can thrive and heal. And all healing is self-healing on some level anyway. And biology is set up to heal. We experience tension with our environment. We experience tension in our inner environment. And then there are internal chemicals, natural chemicals, which are released. Uh, electrical activity released, amplified to deal with the tension or the conflict involved toward inner resolution or outer. And that's how we live in harmony with our inner and our outer environments. That's really what ancient Chinese medicine is all about. Balancing the elements, fire, water, earth, metal. This is what it's about. It's so interesting. I personally just came back from a, uh, uh, a time away in the mountains of North Carolina uh, giving some time to these considerations and involved in some deep uh, meditative uh, qigong practices which address these relationships of the elements outside and inside us and the way we can utilize them for creating balance and ultimately harmony 
which is a word, it's musical in nature, and for good reason. We are part of a larger orchestration. And when you begin to think this way, whole-brained, wholehearted, big-gutted, you begin to see and cognize a whole other level of nature and the universe and possibility. So I truly invite you all to do so. And I want to just thank again, even though he had to run and help his patients this uh, few minutes ago, Dr. Eric Kaplan is doing truly beautiful work, and I was very impressed with him when he tested my brain at a recent uh, meeting we had and said it was the best brain he had seen all day, which uh, put a nice smile on my face. But nonetheless, there is a lot of work to do, and we detected that as well, and uh, I'm working on it. It's really interesting to dive into understanding the electrical nature of the human body, mind, and spirit. We don't really think about it that way. We think purely chemical. And it has a chemical substrate, of course. But honestly, the electrical nature of our body and mind is of essential, germane importance. And when we look at the whole system from a neurophysiological point of view and an energetic point of view, we will be making progress, my friends. I, of course, use a biofeedback system dealing with bioresonance, energy resonance, setting up harmony, first neutralizing the ill effects, energetic slash electrical effects that exist in our bodies and minds, and bring us back to a harmonized balance. So I do this all the time with my clients, working with stress, working with the energy field. And when we do that, we are creating an environment in which chemicals and hormones and enzymes can work more optimally. That's what we're always doing, creating environments. I'd like to kind of emphasize this idea. So when you get away from the one disease, one pill, one cure idea that we have been unfortunately programmed to think is reality, when we haven't found that pill just yet, just please invest another billion or two and we'll stick to our research in a Petri dish. Please, We're the Petri dish. (laughs) Let's just do what common sense over many thousands of years have been teaching us about good, healthy, hygienic habits. Wow, three H's. Powerful. Yes, those three H's can take us far. And making good choices, being social, feeling a lot of love on the emotional side – what gratitude does to the immune system by bringing yourself into a state of gratitude is as good as not better biochemically than love. It's actually equivalent. It's so interesting. We know it in our heart and soul. 
now we actually have it rather charted well through science. I mean, come on, guys. We've been given the, uh, the path, you know. We've been given the keys to Emerald City, to Oz. We can do it. We can get there. And uh, it's just so much up to us. And with good guidance from a few leaders in the fields of healing, and in this case, functional neurology. So I want to thank you all for joining uh, today in uh, this show, A Better World. I forgot to mention that that's why we want to do something on Alzheimer's next time. I'm kidding you. Uh, that we are a 501c3. We appreciate your investment in a better world. It helps us do what we're doing and to develop our platform and stay sustained on the airwaves. We've been on for many, many years. We have a wonderful and growing national and international audience, and we so welcome your participation. You can also go to our website, www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv, and Access all of our radio archives there. They're all for free. Get on our newsletter, which is also for free and comes out not a million times a week, but only once. And it apprises you of the radio and TV shows we have every week on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. That's our community cable TV show here in the Big Apple which, if you do not live in Manhattan, you can watch at that same website online when it's aired in Manhattan, Mondays at 7 p.m., and that's www.abetterworld.tv. Just click on the top where it says, Click to Watch Here, and that's 7 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time on Mondays. And the radio show is heard typically at 6 p.m., on Wednesdays, although it can be accessed and is accessed any time of the day from anywhere on through our radio archives. So thanks again. If you're looking to make any kind of sizable donation over $500, please just contact us first at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr, my initials, at abetterworld.net and besides that say hello we love to get your feedback about how our shows have impacted you and have helped you think and learn or be inspired to do something great in the world and be of service to creating a better world thanks again for joining I look forward to seeing you all next